Wizards of the Coast announces Journeys from the Radiant Citadel. Today, we're also going to be talking about Kobold Press's Warlock Lairs into the Wilds and the intractable problem of D&D maps. All this plus Patreon questions on today's Lazy D&D Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material, behind-the-scenes videos, previews of things to come, but most of all, they help me put on shows like this. So that to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. If you were around for last week's show, we were trying to predict what Wizards of the Coast was going to announce on Tuesday, and we were probably all wrong. I know I was wrong. I fully expected to see a Spelljammer box. I really did. I thought we were going to see something from Spelljammer, mostly because I did like that little bit of regression analysis to take a look back and say, hey, what playtest did they do six months ago? And it was a Spelljammery playtest. So I said, oh, it's been six months. Typically, six months after a playtest, they do it. And I was totally wrong, which gets to the point that like, we, in, the, in the data science world, we call this what it was, a small sample problem, right? There's not enough data to really for us to guess. And we're trying to identify what a company of a few individuals are going to put out. And we don't know. So it turns out we were all wrong. And that's cool. Right. So Radiant Citadel, uh, sorry, Journeys from the Radiant Citadel is what they announced. Journeys from the Radiant Citadel is an anthology of 13 standalone. I'm reading right off the page. 13 standalone adventures set in the wondrous in wondrous lands for the world's greatest role playing game. It is a bunch of standalone adventures similar to your Candlekeep Mysteries. And you could argue a little bit of Ghost of Saltmarsh style. What's really interesting is that the project, the project manager from this and all of the authors are people of color. And they're all writing about areas that they have a connection to. They're Areas where their background is with, right? All of them are really cool looking, very wide range of different adventures that we're going to see. All that kind of are built from this hub city sitting in the middle of the ethereal plane called the Radiant Citadel. So looks really interesting, right? And and was a complete surprise to me, right? And I, last week I talked about like Wizards of the Coast strategy. Should they be going for books that are built on IP that they own, like Spelljammer or Dragonlance and things like that? Or should they be putting out more stuff like this? And the interesting thing about a book like this is theoretically any other third-party company could have done a book like this, right? There's, there's, there appears to be, at least on the, on the surface level, there's no direct intellectual property that Wizards of the Coast owns for a book like this. Now, the difference is Wizards of the Coast has a marketing arm far bigger than any other third-party publisher. And the, rain, the, the, the visibility of their books is like, again, rough estimate on my part, 10 times bigger than the visibility that you get for a third-party product. I, I get that number from a couple of places. I get that number, if you look at Roll20's statistics on how many people are playing 5e compared to other games, it's about 10 times higher than the next highest one. And if you go and look at the number of product reviews on Amazon, I, I said, like, I wonder how many product reviews Toma Beasts 2 has, right? Cobalt Press, Toma Beast 2, probably the most popular monster book that isn't written by Wizards of the Coast. That has 800 reviews. If you go to Morden Kanan's Toma Foes, that one has 8,000 reviews. So a significantly greater visibility, which means for the authors of this book and to put a book like this out, Wizards of the Coast is going to have far greater reach than anybody else has. So that got me thinking about, like, what Wizards of the Coast's strategy is. Is they they're not ignoring the IP that they have, right? We have an Eberron book. We have a Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, right? Those are two books that have come out in the last couple of years, two, two or three years, that clearly are tied to intellectual property that Wizards of the Coast has owned for a long time. They've owned Eberron for like 20 years. They've owned uh, Ravenloft for like 40, 40, 45 years, right? So 
they're clearly still tying to their old their old intellectual property. And we are I'm very confident, very confident that they are going to probably put out very confident they're probably going to put out. I'm very confident that they're going to put out a Spelljammer, some kind of Spelljammer product, because we saw a Spelljammer playtest six months ago. I'm surprised it's not now. I don't know when it will be. Maybe it's a fallish product. I don't know. Maybe maybe they're redoing it. Maybe it turns out it's hard, right? But they're clearly doing something with Spelljammer, and they're clearly doing something with Dragonlance, because we also looked at the Dragonlance playtest a couple weeks ago. So we know that they're still doing stuff with Old Worlds. And I was like, interesting, how, how much are they doing with Old Worlds compared to how much they're doing with New Worlds? And a rough estimate on my part is basically one-third Old World, two-thirds New, right? Because we have Call from the Netherdeep, we have Wild Beyond the Witchlight, Strixhaven, those are all New Worlds. Those are all New Worlds, well, not kind of new, right? I mean, you know, one could argue that uh, Witchlight is the Feywild, and Feywild's been around for a while, but you know what I mean. It's not a dedicated like prismir is brand new right so we look at these and we see that they are kind of putting out a lot of you know, fair number of products that are aimed towards new areas right radiant citadel is an example it's never existed before strixhaven had existed in magic the gathering but not in DD before we see call from the nether deep which is based on critical role which is a new world certainly compared to compared to the old world and what was the other one i mentioned i don't remember strixhaven Call from the Netherdeep and, oh, and Wild Beyond Witchlight, right? Those are all kind of different worlds. So maybe maybe it's more like one quarter old world and three quarters new, but that seems like a reasonable strategy, right? Like, and again, I'm like not going to get into the business of D&D too much and get into behind Wizards of the Coast because I'm here, we're here as DMs talking about DM stuff, right? And... The, the reality is that it's probably a good strategy for them to lean forward into trying to help D&D evolve rather than just staying back in the past of what D&D used to be. They don't want, I don't, I don't think it makes sense to lose that past completely. Like, you know, I think it's perfectly fine that they would do a Spelljammer or, or a Dragonlance book as well as these other ones. And certainly Eberron, I loved. And, and Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft was my favorite Wizards of the Coast book of 2021. I love that book. I've been using it for my Witchlight games. I love that book to death. It's a great, great book. So I think that there's a lot, uh, a lot of interesting things that can, they can do by kind of doing this mix of leaning forward with a bunch of new products and still hanging on to the, the IP that they have in the past, right? They, you could see them going in both directions. You could see them saying, we're going to ignore everything we've done in the past and we're going to focus on new things in the future. You could also say, we're going to just, we have all this IP, we're going to focus on this IP. And they seem to be doing a balance of the two. And that, and that makes sense to me. If you look at journeys through the radiant citadel and you're disappointed i i i offer the following advice i have stated it here before and i believe in this firmly don't let wizards of the coasts drive your happiness with DD. and this sounds like a poke at wizards of the coast it sounds like i'm 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 throwing shade on wizards of the coast and the answer is i'm not it actually this is something i have said for a like a couple of years, maybe even longer, right? I've brought this up. This idea has come to me and it actually makes me happier with wizards, right? I'm actually happier with the products that are coming out because I'm not disappointed and I'm not disappointed because I don't have expectations. I did expect that they were going to announce playing the Spelljammer, right? Am I more excited for Spelljammer than I am for Journeys Through the Radiant Citadel? No, not really. I have Spelljammer. I have the second edition book, right? So, I'm actually not upset at all that they didn't announce it. I still think they will. I was surprised they didn't because I had this feeling they were going to, right? And they didn't. Am I disappointed? No. And the reality is, I don't think I'll be disappointed about anything that Wizards does. And the reason why is that their direction, 
I don't have a head version of Wizards. I don't have a Wizards of the Coast in my brain anymore. I'm, I'm trying to push it away. Like it's there, but it's about what they're doing is different than what I would do. Right. I don't, I'm trying not to think that way anymore. And I'm trying not to think that way. And, and because I don't think that way, I am then often delightfully surprised by the books that they announce and that the books that they put out. I don't think I look at it. I know people, I've talked to friends of mine who, whenever they see a new book like this come out, whenever they see uh, a book like Strixhaven or they see Call from the Nether Deep, I didn't hear anybody really complain. But I did hear about Strixhaven complaints. They see it as a missed opportunity to do something else. Right. They say they put all of this time and money and energy into Strixhaven. And I wish they had put all this time, money and energy into Planescape. I'm bringing that up as an example. Right. And the answer is like, if you really love Planescape, there is a Planescape. You can go buy it. I have I have Planescape literally. Look, everybody, I have Planescape. Right. Big, thick Planescape book. So I still have it. And it was good back then. It's still good now. So, like, I think what happens is a lot of times when we're trying to predict what Wizards is going to do, which is folly, as we have now all examined, it's folly, right, to try to predict what they're going to do, then we're going to be, we may be disappointed if we really expected that they were going to do something and we wanted them to do this thing. And then they don't. We feel like it's a slight on us. We feel like they didn't consult me. They didn't ask me what I wanted. And I told them on Twitter and I don't know why they didn't listen to me, right? And the reality is, like, they're going to do what they're going to do. Now, I think it's fine to get feedback, Right. The other the other argument is of I have a friend who's like, they really should be doing high level campaigns. Right. Why aren't they doing high level campaigns? And I, 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 I disagree. I don't think high level. I, I, I think there's enough evidence to say that high level campaigns just aren't going to be nearly as big a big a market as 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 certainly my, my friend thinks they are. But every time there's a book like Strixhaven, they're like, why wasn't why didn't they put on an 11 to 20 campaign instead? Right. And it's like, well, you know, they're not listening to you. <laughs> right. And they probably have reason. So. Yeah, so I think like if if you're if if one is disappointed in seeing books like this and saying ah, I wish they would do this other thing, I love Hollow World so much. How come they're not doing a Hollow World book? Well, guess what? You don't get to, to tell them what to do, right? You can give them feedback. Hey, I'd love to see Hollow World, right? And maybe they'll take it, and maybe they won't. But they're going to do what they're going to do. And I tell you, I'm happier. I'm happier with Wizards of the Coast products. I'm happier just in general. When I see a book like this, and I go, oh, this is cool. You know, a bunch of new adventures, level one to 14. That's, that's cool. I'm looking forward to seeing this, you know, and do I think they'll do, they'll do Spelljammer? Probably. And I'll be like, oh, that's cool too. Are they going to do Dragonlance? Probably. That'll be cool. I'd like to see that too. So I'm interested in whatever they put out, right? Whatever they put out, I'm far more interested than I was when I, when I was, I had a head version of Wizards of the Coast that I thought should go a certain way. And now I'm just happy to enjoy all of the products because the reality is I have everything I need. I have everything I need to enjoy D&D for the rest of my life. I don't, if no other book got published, I couldn't finish all of the stuff that I've got. So, yeah. So I'm excited about the Journeys to the Radiant Citadel. And I offer that if you are looking at this book and you are like, I am disappointed that X didn't happen. I suggest not letting Wizards of the Coast direction live in your brain. And instead, think of them like a third-party publisher. Again, I love third-party publishers, so I don't, I'm not, I'm not throwing shade on Wizards of the Coast by saying they are all, there are many publishers publishing material for this game we love, which is D&D. And yes, Wizards of the Coast owns the intellectual property of D&D, but they don't really own the game. We own the game, kind of, you know, not from a like strict legal sense, but like we own the books that we own. We get to play it. We get to enjoy it. We get to buy anything or make anything that we want to play. You want to play Spelljammer? Go with the gods. You can play Spelljammer today. You can start a Spelljammer campaign today. 
So uh, that is Journey from the Radiant Citadel. Uh, that's coming out when? When's that book coming out? Uh, June 21st, right? So we have two new releases coming out. Monsters of the Multiverse is coming out in May, and this is coming out in June. So we have two new D&D books that are coming out over the next three-ish months. So, so that is really cool. I was into outsource the book. I'm excited. The inspiration is not just different countries and cultures, but also different cultures, histories. Yes, histories and folklore. I think the historically the astral plane got more kind of attention. Yeah, it's the first time I think there's been anything like a city in the ethereal plane. I think that that is really cool. I'm very interested to see that. Allows them to outsource a book per year. Yeah, so one thing I think is important about this, one thing I like about it is I think this is the exact kind of format that fits well for having a lot of different authors from a lot of different places, right? Uh, Ajit, Ajit George, who put this together, has a wide range of different authors who all wrote for it. And I think the idea of like, A, you have all these different kind of cultures that they're writing about, and they're all different authors. And they're going to be probably different styles and different quality levels and everything like that. But when you have a book of different adventures that are split out like this, it works a lot better better than I think if you try to bring in a big team to work on one adventure, right? If you brought in, I think, I think I'm, I'm making this up, but I think one of the reasons why Wild Beyond the Witchlight is so good as, a, as an adventure is because it was just Stacy and Will Doyle writing it. It was a couple that has worked together working on it primarily, and they wrote it primarily. And I think that builds a stronger overall big adventure when you have two people that are working together, that live together, right, working on this thing. I think if you're doing, if you're going to have 14 different authors or 15 or 16 different authors, it's better to do in a book like this where everybody's got their own piece of it. They write their own piece. And if you love this piece, great. If you don't love this piece, that's okay because all the other ones are still there. So I think that that was a really smart, a smart design style that they did that with Candlekeep Mysteries. They're doing it here. I think that that model to me, that model feels like a good model. Even as a Watsi customer fan, not every Watsi product needs to be perfect fit for you. Yeah, right. Many of them aren't. Like, I don't know how many I'm going to run. I'm not probably, I, I like Strixhaven. My wife is playing in a Strixhaven campaign, but you know, I think it's cool. I bought it, but I'm probably not going to run it. And that's okay. I buy lots of things I don't run. Not everything is for us. Perkins revealed it last year, kind of. What did he reveal? Definitely had those complaints about Wild Mount in 2020. Yeah, so people can kind of look at it and say, yeah, yeah, that's right. People people complained about Wildmount saying, oh, I wanted Spelljammer and instead you put out stupid Wildmount. And Mercer was like, I love Spelljammer too. And trust me, you know, Wildmount did not get in the way. And I think that's definitely true for Call for the Netherdeep and Explorer's Guide to Wildmount is they had entirely different teams that I think were pretty much run by Matt Mercer and, and probably the people around Critical Role more so than Wizards of the Coast. Wizards certainly was involved and their editing groups and everything were involved, but it, the writers were different. They can do a lot of different products at the same time. Let's see, Theros doesn't get enough love. Right, so you know, you're somebody who loves Theros, right? Theros wasn't for me, but other people really like it. You know, and I think it does get a fair amount of like, there's a lot of DM skilled stuff available for, for Theros. I don't know how well the books were sell. It's hard to not have the same quantity as the previous series. That's true. I don't know how they sell. I don't think is too important to me. I have the print on demand versions of Planescape and Spelljammer too. I love them. I do wish they provided fold out maps ever. Yeah, sure. I agree. DMs and players having imagination tied to Wizards IP is bad. You can certainly, having your, having your happiness with the game tied to Wizards IP is probably bad. Maybe. I don't know. The IP is fine. Having it tied to products is bad. Like, you can love the Forgotten Realms. I love the Forgotten Realms. You can love Ravenloft. You can love these old worlds. Just if your thought is like, well, I love it so much that if Wizards doesn't do this thing, I'm sad. That's, that's where we need to look inside, I think. People up in arms are changing the lore and races doesn't seem to know how many times it's happened over the five. Yeah, I agree. Because, yeah, they may put out something for your world and you might not like it. Uh, he revealed the giant space hammer on the Hydra cover. Ah, oh, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. James Haig talked about being the project lead and directly managing the freelancers for Call of the Netherdeep, so it's definitely not eating up all Wizards' bandwidth. Correct. Yeah, so really cool stuff. I'm, I'm excited for Journeys to the Radiant Citadel. I'm, I'm, I'm sure we're going to hear more Wizards of the Coast stuff coming out. 
And yeah, all, all is good. All is good. So now we're going to take a look at a product spotlight. We're going to look at a third-party product. This is Cobalt Press's Warlock Lairs Into the Wilds. So Cobalt Press runs a Patreon, a very good Patreon, in which they release a, I think it's a monthly magazine called Warlock Magazine, which is a uh, black and white uh, black and white, you can get it physically. They sell physical versions. I have a couple of them. And they're short zines. If you remember zines from like the 80s, right? These are small black and white magazines. They're like, you know, digest size magazines. And they have things like character options. They have stories, story and lore. They have new monsters. They have all kinds of things. And then they have the Warlock Lairs, which are short adventures that are uh, short adventures set on, it's often set in Midgard, but really usable in all sorts of other things. And the Patreon is really good because you get, I, I, I selected the PDF version and I get PDFs of this stuff com- coming in constantly. Now, if you're not part of the Patreon or you want to get it another way, Wizards, uh, Wizard, Cobalt Press releases anthologies for Warlock. I actually have three of them. I have uh, Warlock Grimoire 1, 2, and 3. Here is an example of like the Warlock Grimoire. Big, thick book, digest-sized, has hundreds of pages of all of, the, of their Warlock articles kind of put together in books. New cover art, beautiful cover art. Really, 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 really good books. One, you know, one of the many excellent products that are coming out. So... Cobalt Press took a bunch of their lairs, these adventures. They took all of the ones that exist in sort of forest settings, which is why I'm not upset that my Warlock Lair adventure is not in there, because mine was a dungeon adventure and I wouldn't expect it to be. So they put it all together into one book called Warlock Lairs Into the Wild. Unlike the Warlock Grimoires, it is a full-sized book. I bought the, I bought the physical one. I did not get a uh, review copy. This is one I paid for myself. It is a 175-page book that combines a bunch of adventures that they had put out in Warlock Lairs tied to uh, wilderness stuff. And it exists both in PDF and in PDF and print. And I recommend the print version. And I will, I will talk about why, but let's take a look at it. Whoops, that's not right. There we go. So this is Warlock Lairs Into the Wilds. Beautiful cover. And I think it has, so how many adventures does it have? Focus on tier two, levels five to 10, but there's enough lower level adventures that you could create a mini campaign that goes one to 10. So you could tie them together. My expe- I haven't read them all. My expectation is they probably don't fit together perfectly. And and the model that I would use for that is the Margrave, Tales of the Old Margrave book by, by Cobalt Press, is a bunch of different sort of forest-themed adventures that they set in the Margrave. And it was kind of built like you could put a campaign together, but I tried and they were they were all kind of too separate, too separate for me to tie together into one campaign. So I I, I would not expect that you can run this as a really solid, maybe you can, and maybe they did some work, but I bet you it's not the, the tightest campaign. But a bunch of different adventures, I really should know how many, does it say on the back how many? 19 adventures are, are included in this book. 19 different, 19 different adventures. Black and white adventures, black and white artwork, uh, that's good or bad depending on your, on, your, on your style. These have all gone through really cool, I like their, their, their black and white line art is really, really nice. You know, it's definitely a different, a different style. And hey, look, archways. I love archways, right? And so they have uh, new and unique artwork for it. The maps are all Dyson Dyson logos maps. Uh, these are Dyson logos. These are the commercially available Dyson logos maps. So if you like Dyson maps, and we're going to talk all about maps here in a minute. You, it is it is full of Dyson Dyson logo maps. 
I don't know if when you buy the PDF, if you get a map pack of it or not, somebody will have to... Can somebody, can a fine person in the Twitch chat look up whether or not you get a map pack? I hope you get a map pack, but it could be tricky because the Dyson maps don't always work perfectly on a grid, depending on how old they are. Margrave is good as an anthology. Yes, it is not as good as, it is not a solid campaign. Like and a solid campaign that is tied together better is Empire of the Ghoul. So if you're looking for a Cobalt Press adventure path uh, or adventure book, yeah, full campaign book, uh, I would suggest getting Empire of the Ghouls or Scarlet Citadel, two that I hope to run. So really neat book. The price on it is good for 35 bucks directly from the Cobalt Press website. Uh, let me paste this. Oh, I did already. For, for, for 35 bucks on Cobalt Press, you get a physical version of the book, right? And really nice hardcover, good solid book, very nice paper, really good quality, good quality book. Uh, and that includes the PDF. So you're getting the physical version of the PDF for 35 bucks. That's a good, that's a good rate. And shipping is great. It works every time I've done shipping, that works really well. It is, it certainly doesn't seem worthwhile to buy the $30 version that doesn't include the PDF. If I were buying it, I would definitely pick up the $35 hardcover and PDF bundle. And if you want to have a pile of, you know, four, 14 or 16 wilderness themed adventures set in Midgard, this is a outstanding product. I really, I really dig it. I think it's, I think it's very, very cool. So check it out, pick it up see what you like my home game is just getting back to the table again my i have i have two regular games my sunday game and my wednesday game my sunday game is going to stay online uh probably forever my wednesday game is just getting back to the table and that means that i'm going from using tools that i have been now using for multiple two years online and going back to the table and most of that has been very smooth i know about my dice i've got my books i've got my 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 three by five cards i've got all that stuff i'm still forgetting stuff i'm like oh i should have a list of all the characters in front of me like i forgot about the characters right how, how am i forget about the characters and then i came to maps and i'm like how do any of us handle maps in our in-home D&D games? Like, this is really weird. Like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do about maps, right? And how to handle maps. It's such a fundamental piece of how we do our games. What's going on with maps? And then I'm like, am I just being weird? Is this just a Mike Shea thing and no one else cares? So I, I did a little bit of research in this. I, I've been doing some polls. I've been doing some you know, some work to try to expand out and think about this. I'm going to do a longer video about solutions for maps. Today, I want to talk a little bit about the problem for maps, right? And things going on with maps. So there's a couple disclaimers that I want to make. First of all, I'm going to be primarily talking about the use of maps for in-person play, right? And two, I'm going to be talking about this for DMs who are not happy with their current use of maps. And I think that that really speaks to about one in five people roughly right i think four out of five dms either are playing online and they're happy playing online or they have a mapping solution that they're already using and they're happy with and they don't need any help so that means i've got a a 20 there's one in five of you who probably care maybe i don't know all right i think it's around there so i did some polling and i did some surveys and the first thing i figured out was that through about three currently about three out of five surveyed dms dms that i that answered my poll on this three out of five of them are playing online primarily they're they're, they're primarily playing online and then two out of five are playing in-person games, right? Okay, so now we already know that we're two out of five in-person games. And then I said, okay, well, for those of you who are playing in person, what are the different solutions that you use? What tools do you use? And I got hundreds, 500 some comments on Twitter and YouTube about this. I got a lot of comments. I took all of this stuff and I threw it in and did some text analytics to try to find common 
terms, common things that were that were there. And it came out to a few different a list. And what I'm I'm interested in this list in a couple of ways. So these are mentions of a particular type and it's used by like tagging words like this word means this thing. So I went through all of them and kind of so it's not perfect. These numbers are not perfect by any means. I don't think they're off substantially, but they're certainly not perfect. So these are mention of the 571 Twitter and YouTube comments that I got, right? These are the number of times different solutions were mentioned and a tweet could mention multiple solutions. So if somebody said, I use a mixture of printed maps and 3D terrain, that would be tagged twice with both printed maps and 3D terrain, which is if you add these numbers up, it's way higher than 571. And only about 490 of the 571 had terms I could even recognize as being under these. So that was already a cut. And it came down to dry erase mats with like 187 mentions. Battle maps of some sort was 170. 3D terrain, 151. That one surprised me. Theater of the mind, 148. Wet erase maps, 113. Paper-based maps, 96. Printed maps, 85. And TV or video monitors, 82. What I find interesting about these numbers, and again, don't fixate on the specifics of the number. Think about them in general terms. And when I look at these numbers, that means the top mention of dry erase mats, these are like your, your piezo flip mat style things, which I love. Piezo flip mats are great. The top mention is only about twice as much mentioned as the bottom one of TV monitor. And I know a lot of people use TVs and monitors, which means what we have here is not a uh, an exponential curve, a huge long tail curve or what they call a fat tail curve of the number one solution is used 10 times more than the number two, which is 10 times more than the number three. And then like the, the then you get this stream of tiny little solutions, right? Instead, we have nine different, I think about nine, eight, eight different mentions of different things. And so there's overlap because battle mats includes both dry and wet erase, right? So we know that. But what it means is that there's a, a handful of these solutions. These eight, I think, probably grab the majority of solutions that people are using, right? But no one group, no, there's no one solution that everybody is going to, right? So then my next question was like, well, okay, are we happy though, right? Are we generally happy with it? And so I put out a, another poll on Twitter where I said, for those of you running in-person games, again, knowing that only two out of five are running in-person games, how many of you are satisfied with your mapping solution? And roughly, uh, uh, we get roughly that two, the two out of five, three out of five, right? About two out of five of the people who are running them aren't happy, right? Three out of five are happy. Okay, so for the three out of five that are happy with your solution, you know, you don't have to hear me rant. If, I mean, if, if you're enjoying it, please continue to hear me rant. But I'm not, you know, this, I'm not helping you, obviously, because you're happy. You're happy with your solution, right? I'm not. I'm in this slice of people who now is running games in person again. I'm using lots of different tools and I'm not happy with any of them, right? Because when I look at these eight, these eight tools, when I look at these eight tools here, every one of them has significant drawbacks. None of them are perfect. They either take a lot of time to make. They don't very well represent what we're trying to show. They're too, they're too focused and specific about what they do. Like you, they don't have the flexibility that we need. Not all of them. Some of them have wonderful flexibility, but then, or they cost a lot. And many of them have multiple pieces of this, multiple problems, right? So like a dry erase mat is very cost effective. It's like 12 to 15 bucks and it will last you the rest of your life, right? And you just some dry erase markers and you're, you're, you're good to go. I love the dry erase mat. It's, I, I rec, I highly recommend it, right? 
but it takes time to draw out a map. And I'll give you an example where I'm like, oh my God, what are we supposed to do? So uh, this is going to have a mild uh, Wild Beyond the Witchlight spoiler. So if you are playing in Wild Beyond the Witchlight, please, and you and you do not want to be spoiled, please, this will be a minor spoiler. I'm not going to be talking about the theme of the adventure, but you're going to see some, you're going to see some stuff that uh, might spoil a little bit. I don't, I don't, it won't kill your game, right? It's not going to, it's not going to kill your game completely. But I warn you ahead of time that you will you will you will want to take care because you may see something that you really wish you hadn't seen. But I'm not putting names on anything. It's just we're going to look at a couple of maps. So I bought Wild Beyond the Witchlight. I bought the physical version, and I was given at, because of my connections to D and D Beyond, I was given uh, a digital version, which is how I can show these maps, right? And I I look at so look at this map. So this is a map for one of the areas in Wild Beyond the Witchlight. This is actually one of two maps, right? This is the upper area and this is, or this is the upper area and this is the lower area. What am I supposed, so I buy the book. I'm a customer. I go to my game shop. I'm like, I'm excited to run Wild Beyond the Witchlight. And I go and I pay 50 bucks for my hardcover version of Wild Beyond the Witchlight. And I go home and, and go and sit with my friends and we start playing through it. And then I hit a location like this, right? Or I'll give them, let me give another example, right? Here's an example of a map. Look at how complicated this map is. Like this is a seriously complicated map. I have a lot of trouble figuring out how I'm supposed to what I'm supposed to do with this because it's like can I describe it to my players? I can, but like you're going to get lost. Like what do I say? Like I go to this little room down here and I'm like you enter a room and there's five curtains on five different sides and a six curtain on the bottom and there's a table with a bunch of chairs and there's another table on the right-hand side of crates. And they're like what was the first part again? Right? So then you're like, well, I guess I got to draw. But if I draw this, like, look how much I have to draw. There's so much stuff here. It's so big, right? So I actually, I, I, I actually uh, said, you know what? I'm going to, you can tell that I'm not just ranting for the sake of ranting because I drew it. I drew them. All right. In my case, I took, and this is a, this is like, what, what are some solutions, right? And one of the solutions is a great big pad of one inch graph paper it cost me 40 bucks for 100 sheets so a very i think a, a reasonable price but i think it was less it's like 32 dollars, 32 to 40 bucks for 100 sheets of poster sized graph paper and i sat down and i and i drew it this is actually not the more complex one let's see if i can find the more complex one right so here is that same first floor of this first, the middle part. So if you look at the middle area, it's a pretty complicated area, right? And I said, I'm going to draw it. I'm going to draw a poster map and use it for my group. How long did this take? Probably an hour, maybe a little less, right? But, and it was fun. I put some music on and I sat down and I enjoyed it, right? I just enjoyed sitting down and drawing out this map. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is doable. And, and that's fine. And then I was like, okay, but actually, you know, that's only one level, right? Of this four level map and i had to draw all of the other levels right so it took me these three maps three sheets three sheets of gridded one inch grid maps and a sharpie and i think that so of all of the solutions that i've been playing with when i think about the one that is the most reasonable this one is reasonable 40 bucks for 100 sheets of graph paper is a pretty good price and then buy a couple of sharpies and the sharpies last a long time they're way better than wet erase or dry erase markers they they you know you can draw and draw and draw and i I used some techniques that I picked up from Chris Perkins's map foo this is a good article I will link to it in the show notes below if somebody in the 
chat would like to find MapFu, you have to find it in the Wayback Machine in the Internet Archive because Wizards of the Coast took it down. But he has very good things about like how to draw different things. He has good good tips and tricks. And I, you can see that I tried different cross-hatching styles. The cross-hatching looks like, oh my God, that takes forever. That is actually very quick. Just fill in, dropping in lines across about five minutes. It takes about five minutes. And I think it makes the map look a lot better. So, and then I tried this like rocky version around the bottom one. This is some experimenting. I don't know if I would do that again. I think the cross-hatching is faster and I think it's easier to see. This one I think is really, the bottom one I think is, is harder to see. But my point was this was a lot of work, right? It took me probably two hours, right? It probably took me two hours of work to draw out three levels of this map, right? And I was like, okay, that seems reasonable. And then I hit this guy. And A, it won't fit on one of those graph papers. It's too big, right? The map size is too big. And it's really complicated. And one thing is like, I knew this when I was drawing it, I screwed it up and the scale wasn't right. And some of my rooms were the wrong size and things didn't line up right. And if I'm doing a castle like this, it's gonna take forever. What am I supposed to do with this, right? Do I take it to Kinko's and print it out? That'll cost me 40 bucks, which maybe is reasonable, right? What am I supposed to do? Right? What was Wizards of the Coast's expectation for me as somebody who bought this book for running this map? Do I describe it and hope that they recognize it? Do I hold my hand over the book part and show it? Do I just try to print a copy? Like, what am I supposed to do? Right? Yeah, and it's 40, I think, I think doing a full color poster print that would be reasonable size, like a, like a 24 by 32 inch poster at Kinko's is I think about 40 bucks, right? And I'd have to do two of them, 80 bucks, because I got to do the upper and lower floors, right? So I, maybe I'm being obtuse, maybe I'm being overly, I might be hanging on, I might be hanging on too much for, to this problem. And that like, it's been 50 years millions of people are playing D&D. Somehow we've all figured this out. But it feels to me like you went and you bought the board game Gloomhaven, right? You went out to the store, you bought Gloomhaven. I bought, I bought a new version of Gloomhaven. I wanted to have another version of Gloomhaven that I'm not playing. So I bought another version of Gloomhaven. Imagine you bought the board game Gloomhaven, an adventure, cooperative adventure board game, really good. And you open up the box and it has an instruction manual and you read the instruction manual and it says, make sure to put your tokens on the maps in these locations. And you're like, okay. And you look in the book and there are no tokens and maps, right? You would be like, what the F? I paid 50 bucks for this game, which by the way is about 50 bucks. I bought, I paid 50 bucks for this game. It has an instruction mail that tells me about maps and minis. And there are no maps and minis in here. What am I supposed to do? And they're like, I don't know. You figure it out. Or, well, we sell some of our miniatures that you could play in your Gloomhaven game, but we sell them in packs of four that cost you 20 bucks and they're random. What? that like you wouldn't play it we wouldn't play gloomhaven after that now gloomhaven and D, D are different because D, D you can play theater of the mind and we have seen that many people do i, I did some math on this and i think it's, i know it's about 20 percent play theater of the mind and 20 percent play using an abstract map so so that that can work too so one of the things i thought about with this with this map with the with the palace of hearts desires like okay i don't have to draw nearly as nice a map of like these guys right like i don't i don't think these are fantastic but they're they're good they're to scale and they work by the way these are 10 foot squares so you still can't play with a mini on them you can but it's like it's 10 foot instead of five foot right and i was like well what if i just did like a quick sketch and i just show the quick sketch of it look at all the interconnections it's crazy the number of interconnections were significant this is not like this map is actually this map right 
but basically just showing like how the rooms are together. So could you sketch this out while you were playing? Probably, but the holy cow, that's a complicated map. And this is Will Doyle, who likes making complicated maps. Hey, he's a cartographer. He's a very good cartographer. And he made the maps for Tomb of Annihilation, which is also like seven levels. And somehow a lot of people managed to play Tomb of Annihilation. I played Tomb of Annihilation and we still figured it out. But holy cow. And we played that in person. So it wasn't like I had digital tools. There's something about going to digital tools and then coming back from digital tools that has broken my head a little bit. And it made it harder for me to really think about think about maps and so so the solution i offer is this i think that you can buy a i think this is as good as we're going to get right and what you can do here is you can for 40 bucks you get 100 sheets of paper that's a lot that's a lot of maps to make and a sharpie right and then you can draw the maps on this grid with a sharpie and you're probably pretty good and then also a dry erase map for the ad hoc maps i think that those those solutions are, are inexpensive but they're not like when we think about that list of all of the things that people are using the, the it takes time like two hours to put together a map and then what if they're like oh i don't go to like they may never hit all these rooms they might just go and talk to the one npc and leave and then you've got four maps that you spent two hours drawing out that you're not going to use that's not lazy right? This is not a good lazy DM technique. I don't, and I think that's why my head isn't getting around this problem is I like, I am lazy and I am cheap. Not really, but you know, I, I like to, I like to look at things that are very efficient, both in time and money that offer the highest degree of flexibility for our game to go different ways and let our imaginations run wild with the game. And that's why I like the dry erase poster map and a marker. I think that works really well. I think this is probably pretty good when you know you're going to want to draw out a map. And you can use theater of the mind for this. One last thing I'll show is like, you can use uh, fog of war. So here's an example where I took the map, I threw a couple of cut up black t-shirts uh, and I used those to do a fog of war. These are my little tokens. Uh, these, are, these are tokens that you can use an adhesive magnet and an epoxy sticker. You print them out, you punch them out with a one inch hole punch, you stick the epoxy sticker on one side, you stick the one inch magnet on the other. It makes a really cool token, dirt cheap. You can make about a hundred tokens for I think about 40 bucks for all of it, right? So under, you know, about 50 cents a token, but you can make custom images for your characters, which is really cool. And then you can build a set of generic monster tokens that you can use. So like one set can last you through multiple campaigns, right? But the cool bit is you can use your t-shirt to kind of cover up an area. You could put weights on it to kind of hold the shirt in place. I was using miniatures. You could use other things to kind of hold the fog of war in place, move the shirt. The, the shirt bends and is flexible. So you can bend it around hallways and things and kind of get it where you want to go. So that, that is a solution. I'm going to, I'm going to do a video where I'm going to talk more in depth about all of this stuff. I'm going to shoot it tomorrow and we're going to talk all about it, but I wanted to talk, I wanted to do the rant here on this show. And I just, I still don't think that's perfect, right? I don't, I don't think when we, when we look at this, it's an unsolved problem. And, and I call it an intractable problem because it's been 50 years. An intractable problem is like a programming idea. It's a programming slash mathematics idea. The intractable problem is there's no single solution that solves this problem in my mind, right? I think, and I'm, I know many people are using a mix, right? I'm going to be using 3D terrain. I'm going to be using 2D terrain. I'm probably going to set up a monitor so I can display stuff on my monitor. I'm going to have a bunch of different things that I'm going to use because I can't find one solution that covers how am I supposed to display maps to my players, not just for combat, but also for general display. So that is the intractable problem. Oh, wait, let me, let me look at what people, lots of people have been talking in chat. And I'm, I'm wondering, the, I'm, I'm going to guess like how many people like you're cracked, right? Mike, you've cracked 
This is ridiculous. So let's, just, so let's take a step back. Do you expect that this map problem solution will make the game for your players from a seven to a nine? No. I think if you did not have any map and you tried to describe it and people got frustrated, it could definitely hurt the game. I think that for a complicated area, like a dungeon with a lot of different plays, like a Jayquay style dungeon, like some of the maps we were looking at, I think you need to have something. And it might be those loose sketches where you draw a box and you draw a line and say there's different directions here. But it's very easy for players to get lost. If you're just describing it, it's going to be really easy for players to get lost. And if you say, well, you got to go back to that other hallway that had four doors because you only covered three of them. You got to show something, right? And what I found is online, it's way easier for me to do this stuff online than it is in person. Like that's the other thing I didn't mention is online play is significantly easier, which is weird. Back, black fabric at Michael's is cheap. Yeah, if you don't want to cut up a shirt. I had old shirts. Use dirty laundry so the players don't try to peek. That's a good approach. Yeah. Cool using shirts. I use Dwarven Forge, VTT's Foundry, and my favorite is still Theater of the Mind. Yeah, I use I use all of it, right? And I use Theater of the Mind for a lot. And for a battle, I think Theater of the Mind is fine. I think when you're displaying a complicated dungeon layout, though, and people are talking about where they're going and backtracking and secret doors and stuff like that, you need to show something, I think. Maps are pretty sweet. I do have an enormous table, but just represent the battle sites themselves physically. Sure. This is ideal theater of the mind until there's confusion, then a little sketch. Yes, that is a way to go. But you saw like how complicated my sketch got. I'm not even sure that's that's great. My lazy chief is dry erase and theater of the mind. Have players map based on the description. Sure, could do that. And I think that works pretty well. But like, you're still... You're, what are you giving up? You, you're, you're, there's probably accuracy. You have that thing like, oh, sh oh, shucks. I started drawing on the edge of a page and now I ran out of paper, but got spoiled by digital map. This is what happened to me. My head broke when I went to online play and Albert Rodeo was really easy to use. And I used Albert Rodeo and I had online versions and it worked great. And then suddenly I'm back at the table. I'm like, oh my God, what am I supposed to do? Gaming table with a TV for digital maps. I haven't, that's the one solution I haven't done is like the big ass monitor in the center of your table and displaying it there. And I know people that do it and I know that it looks really good. I bet it looks really good and then you try to use it and there's there's disadvantages with it. Like it's hot, right? There, the, 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 you, there's probably IT problems. How do you get power there? There's, you know, you, you're still, I, I, I imagine, I don't have that one, so I don't say, but I doubt it's a perfect solution and it's expensive, right? Like it's to try to embed a, a, a monitor in your table I mean, you got to get a special table for it. You're either spending a significant amount of time or money or both to try to get that. Now you could put a monitor up on a wall or a projector up on a wall. And I know a lot of people do that. That's a little bit easier, but then you got like one person who's got to like crane their neck behind them. So that's, and, and I've got a solution that I'm probably going to do where I have a 32 inch or 27 inch monitor. I think I've got a 27 inch monitor that I'm going to put up on a bookshelf above us. So we can all kind of look up and every it's, it's not perfect line of sight to everybody, but it's close enough. And then I can use like airplay or run a connection from my laptop or something like that to display maps up on that screen when we need it. I think I'm probably going to end up doing something like that which is lazier not ideal so what are the players expectations that's a good question my wife says we don't care like you're spending all this time and energy thinking about this we don't care and i'm like yeah but you'd care if it didn't work right like you, you you're you're fine with all the solutions but i got to do something and when you're looking at really complicated locations you know it works. It's funny to me that like theater of the mind, I think can work fine for battles most of the time. But I think when you have complicated layouts for a bigger places, I think that's where it's really hard to do theater of the mind. Cause again, you're like, there's three doors on the left and one door in the upper North. And then there's this other door. That's like a rickety door on the right. And I've already forgot. All right, let's do some Patreon questions. We're going to do uh, March questions today. And we're going to do March questions next Sunday. And then we're going to go to jump to April. Let's do some Patreon questions. 
Skyo says, I am creating a secret society cult of spies. I, I, I approve of this message. Assassins and infiltrators that specialize in political infiltration and replacing high-ranking NPCs with their own agents. Do you have any resources or tips for integrating secretive cults and managing their web of deceit throughout a campaign's evolving storyline? Yeah, so you can treat them the same way we've been talking about villains. Right, when we talk about villains and how we operate villains in like our campaigns, which we're taking from Dungeon World, the idea of fronts from Dungeon World, you think about what, who, they, who are they, what are their goals, and what steps are they taking to achieve those goals. I would not overthink it. I would not, I would not have a big pin and yarn chart on your wall of all of the different things that they were doing, especially for things that are happening outside of the views of the characters, right? You, you, can, you can change history behind the scenes when the characters aren't looking at it, right? And it's easier to think in big steps. To me, the lazy way of treating this is who who's the group, right? You have the secret society cult of spies. They have a motivation. You have NPCs, right, that are involved. They have motivations for what they're doing. And then they have the steps that they're taking to do them. And the steps should generally be things that are would be visible to the characters, right? That the characters can learn about. So you always wanna be keeping in mind that the characters are there and they're seeing things. And uh, on a good example where I've done this is in Ghost of Saltmarsh when I ran the Scarlet, Scarlet Brotherhood. There was an evil organization behind the scenes and they were doing things. And what I would do is each time I was doing my prep for the session, I would look at the NPC, the, the Scarlet Citadel NPCs, and I'd say, what did, they, what did they do while this was going on? And I'd shove that forward. And they would learn about things that would happen outside. So I had this, the, the, the players befriended a vampire, the vampire dismantled the cult. That was really fun right? Like when the vampire charmed one member of the cult and learned everything about the cult. And it was like, you know that there's this cult that's hunting you down. They're like, really? I'm like, yeah, I charmed this bird. They told me all about it. So that was really cool. And that's, what's fun is like, you think about it, think about this whole thing, like a bunch of balls on a pool table, right? Every ball is like an NPC with their motivation and direction. And when you smash the balls together, how do they, how do they smash together and where do they go? Right. And you, you, you think about that evolves from game to game, but don't just don't build out like a crazy flow chart of every possible thing that could happen or that has happened. Instead, just try to think about the NPC or the group. What are they, where are they going and what do they want? And then what things interacted with them? If there's other groups, how did those groups interact? What, 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 where did the balls collide? And then where did the balls head after they collided? Right. I like Deadwood. If you watch the TV show, Deadwood, one of my favorite TV shows of all time, that one has like a lot of characters with motivations that are constantly colliding with each other. And it's really, really fun. It's really interesting to see. Nick F says, what's your go-to for artwork? My group plays mostly, plays mostly play. This is like maps. We just talked about maps. My group mostly plays theater of the mind, but sometimes a player will need a picture to help visualize something. An MP locations creatures do you just search for artwork during prep to save time yes and if you see me do it in my prep i will just google stuff and i'll go to google image search and i'll find an image and i'll drop it in my notion notebook i'll put it on a tablet or a pad and i'll show it to my players or i'll take that image and i'll paste it over discord so that that is a good way to go ideally you want to look for people where the licensing is such that that you're you're okay but i think if you're not publishing it anywhere and you're just showing it to your players you're not putting it in a book you're not publishing it out to the internet i think you're pretty safe grabbing an image from there and using it i think it, i think that probably falls under fair use i'm not a lawyer so you know, ask your local lawyer. But I'm pretty sure if you just take an image and say, I'm showing to my friends to uh, represent a character, I don't think anybody's going to give you too much, too much grief over that. So do a search. But if you want, you can also look specifically for like Creative Commons ones. If you're worried about that, look for Creative Commons ones. And those are ones where you have a little bit more license to, to, to show it off. 
So that's why I just Google. I do Google image search and grab stuff from Google image search. I'm not, I don't have a fancy, I don't have a really good way to do it. Something else you could do though, is you could buy like digital face cards. Obviously there's the books, right? If you, if you own digital copies of the books, you can take the images from the books. I do that a lot. You could also, there's a bunch of different companies, Inkwell Ideas. My friend Joe Wetzel at Inkwell Ideas has a bunch of face cards for NPCs. You can buy digital versions of those, keep those in a big directory and just sort through that directory and find NPCs. That, that can work too. Perkowitz says, I enjoyed your video on making a heist, but I'm not sure how to run one in a way that differs from a normal dungeon crawl. What do you do to reinforce the feeling of the heist in a game? So that's interesting because I, I ran a heist recently that actually kind of turned more into a dungeon crawl than a heist, right? And it can happen. I think the difference... I wouldn't, I wouldn't get too wrapped up around the idea of a heist versus like situation-based D&D. Situ and I've done a whole video about situation-based D&D. You can see that on YouTube where you're, you're essentially looking at the holistic picture of a location instead of looking at each room and, in, and instead of looking at things as scenes and encounters, you're looking at the holistically of the whole thing and saying, how does this place move and manipulate and how do groups move from place to place? Which you can do for both heists and any kind of situation-based. Heists usually involves a few steps. I would say there's four steps that, that reinforce what a heist is. Number one, planning, right? The group, your, your heroes get together, they get the information that they have and they plan a heist. Usually they have a fair bit of information. They might have a layout of the place that can help. They certainly know the entrances to a place. They probably know what obstacle, some of the obstacles they're gonna face and they have a goal. What is it that they have to accomplish? So that's phase one. What's the goal? Where are they doing it? What do they know about who's there and what's gonna guard it, right? That's, that's phase, phase one is that. Phase two is actually engaging in the heist. And a heist has a location, a mark or a goal what's the thing that they're going there to steal or do or assassinate or kidnap or capture or replace or whatever what's that goal and then who's there who's in the way right and that could be guards it could be the family if you're trying to invade a manor it's the family it's whatever that group is and in this case the group are they move around right guards take positions and move around people will come and go and then the characters then engage in the heist. So they plan, they plan it and they engage in the heist. And then part of it is what weird ass thing happens there that complicates the situation. This is sort of right out of the movies. What's the complication to the heist? And it could be like another villain shows up or they move that they suddenly are starting to move the mark. The move, the mark is now not where they think it is. It's now going to this other place. They find out about it or something, you know, building gets set on fire. Some complication that occurs that changes up the situation in the whole place and changes the approach that the characters have to take to me that is a good way of thinking about a heist right that's a good though th those ways if you think about like how blades in the dark treats a heist they act they, the phases are sort of that those same phases and and i think it can really well so i hope that answers uh your question about heists mick i says i qu uh, a question that is challenging to me is how to assign a challenge rating to monster design it's fine in my own games i run two games one at level two the other at level nine and i just turn that up or down the dials however when de designing monsters for others what makes you say a cr1 is uh this is a cr1 and this is cr12 so this doesn't really relate to dming but i'll i'll i'll, I'll I'll give an answer anyway from a monster design perspective. If you're designing monsters for other people to use, the easiest way, and, and and so I've now worked for multiple design companies, right? I've worked for, have I made monsters for Wizards of the Coast? I don't think I have any monsters that I designed for Wizards of the Coast, but I've designed them for MCDM. I've designed them for Cobalt Press. I've designed them for, I think, a few other companies. And I've certainly designed a bunch for my, for my own publications. 
and different publishing houses have different ways they do it. One way is you look at the making, the designing a monster section from the Dungeon Master's Guide. That is not, that if you design a monster, and like Cobalt Press is fine with that. Cobalt Press, if you design a monster using the guidelines in the Dungeon Master's Guide, that's what goes in. And if you notice, Cobalt Press monsters are a little harder than normal because of this. Because they don't account for that, that design does not account for things that Wizards of the Coast accounts for. MCDM, working with James Castle at MCDM, they do another approach, which is very common, which is look at it in comparison to other monsters of the same challenge rating. So if you're making a monster and you look at its hit points and its damage output and its armor class and its defenses and any other weird kicker abilities that it's got and any resistances that it's got, you look at that and you look at other monsters in the monster manual. I, I'd probably stick to the monster manual, right? And look at what, where does this fit? Right? What other monsters is this close to? And generally you can get close. So you can you can start and then you can use a mix of the approach. The Dungeon Master's Guide as a beginning and then look at what actual monsters are like that are like this and then and then judge it on that. Like all of this, it is a flexible fluid thing, which is why you have monsters of challenge rating that are the same in Cobalt Press that are actually much harder than the ones that are in Monster Manual, things like that. So Mick, I hope that I hope that answers your question. Jason K says, how do you prep for and run a campaign in with a one to two hour sessions? It's been asked, I've been asked to run a campaign for the first time players and they only have two hour windows every week. How would you do it? So uh, two hours is actually easier than one. Generally speaking, you want to think about how many scenes you're going to run. You're not going to be running a big heist. And, or if you are, it's going to be broken up into pieces. You're going to run small episodic adventures and you're, you're going to get about two to three scenes in a two hour block with you know, thinking about like one battle and something like that. If it's a great big battle, it might take the entire time. An hour is really one scene because you're going to introduce the characters and then you're going to have like a, a set scene, right? And it could just be an encounter, right? You're going through you know, the whole game might be you're going through a, you're, you're going through a town and a thief tries to steal something. And then a group jumps the thief and another group jumps in and they're involved in like this crazy battle in the middle of the city street. Right. And they do that battle and that's the whole game. Uh, I was in a game that a friend of mine ran yesterday and we were going from one place to another and got into a fight and it took the whole session and it was like two and a half hours just for that one big fight. Now we're level nine, a lot of different monsters, a lot of stuff going on. It was quite a, quite a battle, right? But an hour is really hard. Uh, you can take a look at the one hour adventures that the Adventures League put out, but even those tend to run 90 minutes. Like they, they really, it's really hard to, it's really hard to do this. Yes, and I have done a an interview with Sean Merwin who wrote those adventures about building one hour games. The reality is it's very hard to do an hour. Two hours is more reasonable. You can do you can do a fair bit. You can do two to three scenes in two hours. You really can only do one scene in one hour and it's hard to have like an entire arc of a story happen in one scene. So that's tricky. Derek R says, I'm running the Tomb of the Nine Gods. We were just talking about this for my homebrew campaign as a final dungeon, but I've never run a classical dungeon before. All the looking I found online has been about how to build a dungeon and populate it. Do you have any tips or recommendations to actually run a dungeon crawl? Do you ask them at every intersection where they go? Do you give them a room number and, and you walk them there? Good, good question. And I, you know, boy, a big one, a big question. May, it may be worthy of a bigger video, right? A longer video about how do you actually run a dungeon crawl? So one thing I would not do is do like the every 10 foot or every five foot, you know, tapping with a stick. That's what pa like passive scores, passive perception, stuff like that can help. 
I think that like a dungeon that has a lot of traps is actually kind of a burden. Like it's, you know, they did it back in the old days. And if you do like a tomb of horrors originally, but even you'll notice tomb of the nine gods has like fun house rooms, but it doesn't have a lot of like hallway traps and stuff. I might be misremembering, but I don't think it has a lot of hallway traps. And then we're back to my mapping rant, which is it's kind of hard to display a map like the Tomb of Annihilation or the Tomb of the Nine Gods because it's like seven levels, right? And so your best bet is, I don't even know what we did. I think I basically kept the maps on my iPad and I would show them on the iPad where they were and we could switch between maps so they could jump from one map to another. It wasn't ideal. Again, maps, man. Maps are hard. I would not overdo, I would, I, you know, let the players know what their characters see and do. Don't, don't hide too much information. And I'm just rereading the question. Do you have any tips for recommendation? Actually running. Do you ask them at every intersection where they go? Yeah. So you can say like, there are three different paths you can take. Try to keep it like, what are the different options they have? Like you can go to the left, you could go to the right, or you could go back the way you came and go back to that other room that had more options, right? And then show them what those rooms are like and help them map it out. But yeah, like Tomb of the Nine Gods, great big dungeon. And I think like that idea of the line and block chart, you just draw a box and you draw a line that kind of shows and each line is sort of an exit out of a room and they can see and you could write on it directly. I, they don't, that's as good as I got, but I'm back, I'm back to like, it's really hard. The funny thing, it's much easier to do this online, right? I bet you're getting me on my map rant again. So I don't, I, I think my mapping one might be useful when I do my video on mapping, but yeah, running, running dungeons is hard. Vincent N., I am running a homebrew campaign with a bunch of friends, and the problem I keep running into is changing my mind about plot points as our session. Not only do my players do the unpredictable, like most players, but since it's a pretty story-focused game, they spend a lot of time in character thinking about what they should do next. I love the character planning, but at the end of the last session, I was paralyzed with how to prepare the next one since the consensus was not reached. We've talked about this. Do you have any advice for, for being malleable in my narrative while also having ample time, ample material to plan? Yes, make them come up with a decision at the end of a session right steer your session so that at the end even if they're in the middle of something you might stop and say okay we're going to finish this part out but then you guys are going to be facing a choice do you want to head to the the vault of tacarin do you want to go to skybreaker 4 i'm picking from my numenera game do you want to go to skybreaker 4 or do you want to log into the data sphere and find out what you can find out from from there right you're going to make that choice and then make them choose one of those so that for the next session you know what direction you want to go next right it, I have done, I've screwed this up like within the last three weeks, I've done the opposite, which is, ah, oh, I forgot to ask. And now the players are, uh, now in the middle of a session, I have to ask what the direction they're going to go. And then I have to hopefully pick one of those, right? So the big one is focus on what three options. This is an easy way to go, right? What are the three options that the players might face next? And try to get them to choose it at the end of a session so you know which one you got to prepare next. That's it's really a, a good, easy way. It gives them choice. Like they have now multiple directions that they can go and multiple paths they can take, but they make it the choice and then you go that direction. And you can take a vote. I, I like to do sort of the semi-unanimous vote where it's like, you say, you go around to each player, where, where, where do you want to go? And they say, I'd like to go here. Some people are like, I don't care, I'll go where the group goes. And then at the end, you, you, you get a general course. Says, it sounds like you all want to head to the Vault of Tacharin. Is anybody opposed to going to the Vault of Tacharin? Does anybody really not want to do that? And generally, they go, no, Vault of Tacharin is good. And you go, okay, Vault of Tacharin it is, right? And then you prep for the Vault of Tacharin. Joe M says, I heard many people talk about the value of giving movement options to boss monsters. Matt Colville is one, as one of the villain actions you have mentioned for before legendary actions. I've never understood why my players tend to just surround a boss to get flanking. What's that? I don't know what that means. 
I know you don't use that rule. And if my boss needs to be in melee, then even if the boss adjusts position to target a weak PC, the other PCs will be able to move and still attack. Bosses that have uh, long range attacks and room to use it are the exception. Obviously, I haven't run any of those. I'm thinking specifically about the Blade Queen Marilith. Yes, I didn't end up using the teleport option even when it was free to her because there didn't seem to be a point. What type of situations make boss movement options so important to other DMs? Am I not thinking tactically enough? Are my combat environments not tactical enough? Do I not have the right or wrong players to come up? So, good question. The reason those exist is because usually a boss monster that is facing multiple melee characters is at a severe disadvantage. And the idea that you bring in flanking is is an example of that. Boss monsters are, they, boss monsters have a really hard life in D&D. They are the clear prime targets for characters. Players want to wail on bosses they they target bosses first almost always they'll target a boss before they'll ever deal with minions unless they forced to and when you have two or three melee people up against a boss unless that boss is really designed to handle that an example would be a boss with fire shield right or a boss with an aura that is doing damage to everybody around it there are ways that you can get a boss and i, I don't know if the blade queen i can't remember if the blade queen had um an aura like that i, I think she did i think she had like spiraling blades around her right and typically, almost any boss is not going to do well when it's pinned down by multiple people, flanking being an example. So that boss is almost never going to have a chance to get away. So having an option, a vampire is a good example of a boss that needs to be mo- mobile, right? A, bo- a vampire is not going to just stand there getting its ass kicked. A, a vampire is going to move. And vampires, by the story, have ways to, they're so fast in their movement, they should be able to zip out of combat. They, you know, zip away, not take any opportunity attacks and and do it. The other one is to throw the challenge to characters who have it too easy. If you have three melee, if, let's say you have a, a paladin, a fighter, and a rogue, and a wizard, and an, a ranger. And the ranger and the wizard, the ranger just sits back and fires arrows, and the wizard is throwing spells. They're probably not going to be at much of a threat against... Uh, a boss if that boss is pinned down by three other creatures but if that boss can teleport or move or shift without provoking opportunity attacks or whatever it can go and and move over and attack the wizard and the ranger which shakes up the battle considerably now everybody's got to scramble around and run so the big reason to give bosses mobility is because bosses are so heavy they're such a heavy target they need something that normal monsters typically don't need because normal monsters characters tend to spread out and attack them they have mobility because they're often not attacked by three people so it it always depends on the monster like would a dragon have the problem and dragons want to get up in the air and fly and breathe fire so usually they have like a wing attack many of them i think have a wing attack that knocks people prone pushes them away and gets them out of the way so that the, the 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 dragon can fly but an easy way is to give a boss monster a, like a legendary action or some kind of capability to move without provoking opportunity attacks it may it could be a teleport or a misty step or it could be just move without provoke or it could be like a dragon's thing and the reason why is that bosses when they're pinned down are usually much easier to defeat than bosses that are moving around and they're also bosses that are pinned down are much less of a threat to the characters that aren't next to them than they would be otherwise if but if it's working for you like you 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 sound like you're saying in this question joe you 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 sound like you're saying i don't know why i need that if you don't think you need it you don't need it right like no one can tell you you should be doing you're doing it wrong 
But I can tell you, there are many DMs, myself included, who when they see a boss pinned down, they see a boss that's killed too easily, that isn't threatening back, back row characters and stuff like that. And that's why those things exist. It exists for the people who are having a problem with it. So if you're not having a problem with it, it is not a problem for you. My friends, we come to the end of the Lazy D&D Talk Show. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with me today to enjoy this show. I want to thank the patrons of Slyfleur specifically for helping support this show. If you enjoyed the show, you can help me out by supporting me on Patreon. The links are in the show notes below. You can also subscribe to my videos here on YouTube. You can buy any of my books uh, or you can join the Slyfleur newsletter where you will get new uh, articles to your inbox every week. Friends, thank you all very much for coming. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D. &D.